0: Welcome to The Restaurant Boiler Room, Episode 18. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in The Boiler Room, tension in M&A transactions, franchisors and franchisees, drive throughs outpacing dining room sales, Taco Bell ramps up international development, and our advisor profile, Tyler Carter at Unbridled Capital. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations and risk, delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors and franchisors on an every other week basis. Feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now let's enter the boiler room. Our first topic for today is tension in M&A transactions, franchisors and franchisees. Now the background here, since the advent of franchising, Franchisors and franchisees have had competing and complementary interests. Most of the time, their common interests prevail for the benefit of the entire brand. However, at times of excess and distress, these relationships are often tested more fiercely. In the current environment, these relationships are developing more strain than in the recent past. For the foreseeable future, it appears that the franchisor and franchisee relationship will continue to be tested. Now, comments here. At the very core, both franchisors and franchisees want to protect the integrity and success of the brands in which they operate. Both parties want strong operations, great restaurants, innovative new products, food safety, reliability of employee programs, a strong supply chain, consistency across each restaurant nationwide, growth amongst competitors, and high revenues, to name a few. However, their interests are not totally aligned. For example, many franchisors have largely gotten out of the business of operating restaurants. This asset-light model is increasingly common, whereby franchisors own very few, if any, restaurants, preferring to sell them to franchisees. This has several benefits for franchisors. Less operational headaches, lower GNA structure, less financial risk. The franchisor becomes essentially a coupon clipper, much like a bondholder and an increased valuation for the brand because investors will pay a higher price for a royalty stream. For the franchisee, however, an asset-like model offers up plenty of concerns. The franchisor has less context on the operational side of the business. Franchise services are severely cut. As an example, which of you listening to this podcast as franchisees has seen your franchise area rep in your markets in the past few years? Probably not many of you. Well, new executives are hired who have little understanding of the restaurants they support, and there's a growing lack of interest in smaller franchisees whose royalty payments and growth potential are small or negligible. There are other concerns as well. Franchisees are primarily interested in maximizing their profitability. They're entrepreneurs and are one of the best sources of self-starters in our country. However, a franchisee will make self-serving decisions in many cases in order to maximize profits. They might delay remodeling a restaurant, reduce store hours to become more profitable, understaff a restaurant, pick the wrong trade area for a new site because they can't afford expensive real estate, disobey franchisor-mandated menu pricing in order to serve their local needs, etc., etc., etc. Franchisors, on the other hand, are managing a brand and are largely beholden to investors who often are concerned with policies that will drive shareholder value or stock price in a way that could be detrimental to a franchisee. For example, most franchisors want to avoid store closures at any cost. Why? Because store closures reduce royalty payments and are viewed negatively by the public markets. Just Google the term net new unit growth to learn more about this. Additionally, franchisors want to expand a franchisee's footprint by pushing them to develop new restaurants and remodel existing ones, often at the chagrin of the franchisee. And since most remodeling projects don't have a healthy return on investment, franchisors are largely out of touch with the financial commitments needed to implement new remodeling efforts across a franchisee's portfolio. Franchisors are also concerned with their profitability. So it's always enticing for them to cut services to franchisees to save money. And finally, franchisors will often push for standardization of pricing when, for example, San Francisco and small town Kansas are two totally different places with completely different pricing sensitivities. Now these competing interests start to flare up when things are either good or really bad. And in times of distress, a franchisee is just trying to survive financially often making poor short-term decisions. But a franchisor still has brand standards, remodeling projects, store closure restrictions, and profitability goals to investors. In great times, most franchisors are trying to use a good economy and easy lending to push for greater development requirements and remodeling projects. And they sometimes get just too big for the britches. Franchisees are unwilling to risk their financial portfolio for growth at such a haphazard pace and with some amount of cannibalization. Now the effects on M&A. At no time is this conflict more apparent than when a franchisee decides to sell the restaurants. All franchisors have a right of first refusal, meaning they can buy the restaurants at the same price offered by any buyer. And if the franchisor decides not to purchase, they get to approve or disallow the transfer to the buyer. Today, because of the asset-light philosophy, franchisors almost never exercise the right of first refusal. In other words, they almost never buy a franchisee's restaurants when a franchisee wants to sell. The natural conflict then occurs as follows. A franchisee wants to maximize their sale price, assuming that they can sell the restaurants to the best buyer at the highest price. However, a franchisor does not care at all about a franchisee's take-home proceeds in a sale. They care more about the ongoing integrity of the restaurants and protecting the interests that maximize their shareholder value. To do so, franchisors are getting more manipulative in the sales process to try to orchestrate deals into the hands of certain franchisees. In many cases, their favorite franchise buyers are the healthiest financially and best operationally. But there are sometimes spurious motives. Some franchisees will inherit likely store closures and keep them open, for example. Some franchisees will commit to developing new units more quickly, as another example, etc., etc. The store closure hot button is a big one in today's market, as we are seeing an oversaturation of restaurants after the past seven years of economic expansion. Franchisors often prevent unprofitable stores from closing in order to meet net new unit growth requirements to propel stock price and prevent store closures can cost franchisees hundreds, if not millions of dollars, in the value of a sale. New unit development is another big hot button. In a recent transaction, we sold 20 restaurants in a given brand, and the franchisor, as a condition of approval, asked for 10 new units to be built in the trade area over a several-year period. This was a financial burden for the buyer who dropped their price later in the transaction to account for the surprising new unit development commitment they had to make. In both instances, franchisees are unable to maximize the value of their business in a sale due to the differing goals and financial interests of the franchisor. Now, as the economy nears the likely end of a long upcycle, I expect to see this franchisor franchisee relationship getting tested with greater pressure, and M&A is at the center of this controversy because there are so many stakeholders involved when a franchise sale takes place. Our second topic is drive-thrus outpacing dining room sales. The background here is that Danny Klein wrote a recent article about Jack in the Box and their drive-thrus, saying that 70% of the brand's business comes through the drive-thru, with 15% coming from takeout and 15% from the dine-in. As such, he cites the brand as considering where to invest their remodel dollars when most customers don't eat in the dining room on any given visit. Now, comments. Restaurant dining rooms across America are less and less occupied. Start with the casual diners. They've had massive store closures and negative traffic trends in recent years. Then jump to pizza companies. Pizza Hut is a notable example of how the dining business has suffered recently as well. Delivery and takeout are the key drivers in the pizza business. With the advent of digital ordering, takeout, catering, and third-party delivery, we still have flattish sales across most other restaurant concepts in this current environment. What does this mean? The huge pickup in sales from these sources is being met with a big reduction elsewhere, namely in the dining room. And now, the effects on M&A, other than EBITDA, one of the biggest drivers of restaurant valuations, is future remodeling expenses. If remodeling costs can be refocused on the area of a restaurant that drives better profitability, namely a speedier drive-through or better technology for greater ordering capacity, then this type of remodeling cost will be much more welcome than changing ceiling tiles and carpet in empty dining rooms. Sales-driving remodeling programs will always be met with much more excitement in the m and and buying community than remodeling programs that don't drive sales. Executives at franchisors should be commended when they are looking for new ways to increase the sales and profitability of their franchisees' locations. Now, our third topic is Taco Bell ramps up international development. The background here is, in another article by Danny Klein, it is reported that Taco Bell has entered into a master franchise agreement with Burman Hospitality Private Limited in India for a commitment of 600 restaurants over the next decade. This would add about 20,000 jobs to the economy there, make India the second largest Taco Bell market in the world, and help Burman become Taco Bell's largest franchisee. Comments, when I worked at Yum Brands Corporate, I got a first-hand look and how incredibly important the international business was and still is for young brands. KFC was exploding in China and several other countries across the world. Pizza Hut had a successful business in many countries, including Europe and Latin America. However, for some reason, Taco Bell could not find any international momentum years ago. They continually bounced in and out of international markets with little success. At the time, one of the reasons I was told was that Taco Bell was an upscale restaurant internationally, unaffordable to many potential customers. If true, that's the opposite of here in the U.S. Interesting, huh? Effects on M&A now. So the international business will be a key driver of value in many brands over the next decade. American markets are stagnant for growth. There are few trade areas to develop new restaurants, and sales in existing restaurants can really only grow by 2 to 3% annually over the longer term. Especially for public companies, international growth is one of the only ways to support the 10-plus percent op profit growth needed to justify a higher stock price. For Taco Bell, the opportunity is huge for Liz Williams' team. Liz was a CFO at Taco Bell and is now the president at Taco Bell International. There are only 35 locations in India right now. Sydney and Melbourne, Australia are debuting Taco Bell soon. Canada is on a big growth curve for Taco Bell. Other markets on the horizon include New Zealand, Indonesia, and Portugal. And as a personal aside, I was always surprised at how the Spanish and Portuguese cuisines do not use much spice. I wonder how they'll take to the fire sauce. Good luck to Taco Bell as they look to ignite international expansion. Our fourth topic today is our advisor profile, Tyler Carter at Unbridled Capital. I'm excited to announce that Unbridled is growing again, this time with the addition of Tyler Carter to the team. Tyler's a great guy and will do a fantastic job of helping our clients realize the best possible outcome in the sale and financing of their businesses. I did a recent Q&A with Tyler so everyone could get to know him and here are some excerpts with Tyler. Question: Where were you born and raised? Answer: Tyler says I was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. Question: Tell us about your education. Tyler says, I attended the University of Kentucky and graduated with an undergraduate degree in finance. After a few years in the corporate world, I went on to earn a master's in finance from the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University. What is your position and or responsibilities at Unbridled Capital? Tyler says, I'm an M&A advisor. At Unbridled, I'm focused on guiding clients through the sale and financing of their businesses. In addition, I also work closely with clients on business analysis, valuation, and capital strategy planning. What do you enjoy doing when not working? Tyler answers, most of my time away from work is spent with family or watching University of Kentucky sports. My family enjoys being active together, so when the weather is good, we love taking our bikes to the many Louisville parks to experience different trails. Tell us about your family. Tyler says, I've been married to my wonderful wife, Meredith, for 11 years, and we also have three fun and crazy kids that keep us very busy, ages 4, 6, and 8. Next question, share with us one interesting fact that most people don't know about you. Tyler says, a fear of public speaking is known to be the greatest fear of many people. For me, I really enjoy speaking in front of large crowds. This is usually surprising because people don't expect it with my laid-back personality. Question, what excites you about the business and our clients at Unbridled Capital? Tyler says, generally speaking, I love the restaurant business. I spent a short stint of my life as a franchise operator and many years investing in the restaurant space. At Unbridled, we have some awesome clients, and I love working with the entrepreneurial group that makes up the franchise community. I consider it an honor to help them in the sale financing and growth of their businesses. What is your role in giving back to the community? So Tyler says, I'm usually volunteering as a youth sports coach year-round. I've spent the last few years coaching basketball, soccer, and baseball in youth sports leagues at my church. Who or what inspires you? Tyler says, lately, I have seen many friends entering the fostering and adoption process. It is inspiring to see people that continually open their homes to more kids in need of a family. And our last question, what are you currently reading or podcasting? Tyler says, Kentucky Sports Radio is my daily podcast download, but I'm also listening to The Garnish, a restaurant podcast right now. Thanks so much for entering the boiler room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes podcasts, videos, white papers, and a list of our M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital LLC give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom.